and welcome to the Readings Podcast. I'm Tom Hoskins from Readings at the State Library. Today's podcast is a live recording captured in May 2019 at Melbourne's Athenaeum Theatre. It features Stan Grant, author of the new books Australia Day and On Identity, in conversation with Nam Lee, author of On David Maloof and The Boat. To introduce Nam, this is Christine Gordon, Events Manager at Readings. So, without further ado, I am going to introduce you to the wonderful Nam Lee. Nam Lee's first book, The Boat, has been translated into 14 languages that received over a dozen major awards in Australia, America and Europe, including the Australian Prime Minister's Literary Award and the Melbourne Prize. The Boat was also selected for the Best Debut of the Year by New York Magazine and a Book of the Year by over 30 different venues from across the world. Uh, Nam's second book, On David Maloof, part of Black Ink's Writer on Writers series, was published earlier this month, and I am pleased to tell you that we will have both of these titles for sale in the foyer. Can we, at the very first instance now, make Nam Lee very, very welcome? Thank you, Chris. Thanks everyone for coming out tonight. I'm very happy to be here. Um, And I wanna start with a confession, if I may. Not so long ago, when I was asked to take part in this conversation, I knew less about Stan Grant than pretty much everyone in this room. Sure, I knew his face, his affable smile beaming out of the telly. I knew that he was exceptional a crosser of the colour line, a breaker of chains, some might say, a first Indigenous this and first Aboriginal that, and that was enough. I thought I knew who he was. And then Adam Goods was booed across the country, and I heard Stan's viral address and was moved and convicted by his rage. And again, I presumed that I knew who he was. He was the angry black man with every right to be angry and surpassing eloquence in his anger, but still that. And when every single person involved in this event mentioned independently that Stan was a, quote, special man, I again, somewhat irritatedly, presumed I got it. I slotted him into the role of role model, social conscience, spokesperson on race. And I'm here now to say mea culpa. I was wrong. Not because Stan is not these things, but because he's not only these things. I didn't allow him his double consciousness, his multiple consciousnesses, his individuality. I fell lazily into a trap that was at least in part racially inflected, a trap I've spent my life warning others away from. Since then I've read Stan's writing, I've tracked along with his thoughts. And I'm here to tell you, this is a very special man. In an age of grievance, an age of resentment, an age of division, this is a man who exemplifies true courage. The courage to tell the truth, even when that truth is unpopular and assailable on every side. Stan shows us that what's not brave, despite our acting as though it is, is speaking from tribe, 
that it's braver to seek common ground. Braver still to speak from the space between outside tribe. Braver still to keep an open mind and even to change your mind. Braver still to speak in the mode of dialectic to make new common ground. And bravest of all to accept contradiction and uncertainty, to hold to opposing truths. This is a way of thinking, feeling and being that is anathema to the professional partisans, the trolls, the gatekeepers, the identity police and border patrols. Now more than ever, we need courageous thinkers. And just today, we received news of the death of Sven Lindquist, a writer who in his masterpiece, Exterminate All the Brutes, told the terrifying and unthinkably brave truth about how Western colonialism paved the way to Hitler's Holocaust. Stan Grant keeps company with Linguist, and he shares his spirit, one not ashamed to prize freedom and love above all else, and to say so. These are big, cheesy words, I know, and I stand by them, because I've never been so happy to have been so wrong. Stan Grant is a self-identified Indigenous Australian who counts himself among the Wiradjuri, Kamilaroi, Darawal, and Irish. His identities embrace all and exclude none. He is us, and we are him. Please help me welcome Stan to the podium to read. Thank you so much. That was beautiful, Nam. Thank you so much for that. I'd just like to say something, first of all, in my father's language. To the first people of this land, from my people, the Baradjuri, thank you for allowing me to speak here tonight uh, and to be on this country, and tonight all of us can meet here as one people. I just want to read a little bit from both of my books tonight, Australia Day and On Identity. I just want to set up the, the small passage that I'll read from Australia Day by just backgrounding a little bit. I begin the book by looking back at Australia Day 2018 from Hong Kong, where I'd been invited to speak to an Australia Day luncheon, and being disturbed by what I saw as the increasing anger around the day. Not that this anger was not necessary or even righteous, but disturbed at where it came from and where it may lead us. And I recalled another Australia Day in Washington, about to fly back to Australia, when my speech at the Ethics Centre was about to be released, going viral and, and changing my life. Now in 2018, here I was in Hong Kong on another Australia Day, preparing to give another speech while back home, other Indigenous people were marching in anger. I felt like I was at war with myself. How can the souls of my ancestors rest when our national day is a day of shame? Should we change the date from 26 January? That has never seemed to me the right question. Instead, we should be asking, why should Australia Day be moved? What is it about this day? What does it tell us about ourselves? Can we so easily deny a day that forever altered the story of this land. The British fleet came and it brought human cargo and a new tradition. It brought democracy 
new laws and new ways of seeing the world. It came at the pinnacle of empire. It came with enlightenment. The view from the ship was of a new land for a new beginning, a colony that would become a nation. For some, this land was a prison from which they would never escape, but would in time call home. My story begins on that ship. The view from the shore was of strangers. They had come before and then departed. Now they were back. Land would be cleared, buildings erected. This time, they were here to stay. They spoke a different language. Their bodies were fully clothed. They brought the whip and they brought alcohol. Soon would come disease and violence. In a few short years, so many of those on the shore would be gone. The population of the local people was ravaged. In time, the survivors would take on new names. Their skin would become lighter. They would lose their language for English. My story begins on that shore. The story of Australia begins on that shore when a people of steam and steel met a people of flint and bone and wood. A people of enlightenment met a people of dreaming. They danced briefly on that shore. It is a long overlooked moment of Australian history, but in those first few months, they danced hand in hand on the beach, swapping songs under the moonlight. It is a story told by the late historian Inga Clendinen in her book, Dancing with Strangers, how these two peoples took each other hand in hand like children at a picnic. Soon the frontier wars would ignite, the years of killing would begin. Between the dance and the destruction is the Australian dream. It is here I find myself. I live between the dance and that destruction. I live between the ship and the shore. It is here that the dream remains unrealised. In this troubled space, we all live our lives. I want to read a little bit from On Identity, which again deals with this question of why we put people in boxes and how we cannot inhabit that space between. In a perfect world, I would have no need to write of identity, but the world is not perfect, and identity is one of the reasons why. It consumes me. It is the thing I must write about if I am free to write about anything else. There is no other way. Identity was foisted on me before I could even choose what I wanted to be. There were names for people like me. Aborigine, half-caste, Aboriginal, Indigenous, and many more that I won't repeat here because to do so would only give them power and those names have caused enough damage already. It is enough to know that I am none of those things, even if at times I've had to be all of those things. I am an invention, a fiction, an historical anomaly, stumbled upon, discovered, and then denied. The names I have been given have erased whatever it is I could have been and put in place what others could see, or more precisely, what others were prepared to see. There have been dozens and dozens of official names for people like me, and our fate was determined by what name fell upon us. One of my great aunts, for example, was called a half-caste and taken from her family to a dormitory where she slept with other girls under a sign that told them to think white, act white, 
be white. She wore white gloves and a long dress and with the other pale-skinned Aborigines was marched into town and back to go to school and then one day would be sent to work for a white family and if all went well would find a white man and have ever whiter children. In her case it didn't work. She found her way back to her family, met a blacker man and had ever blacker children before she died when she wasn't even 40. What a failure she must have been to a society that made a fetish of colour. It was government policy to keep Australia white. We even invented a peculiarly Australian mathematics for it. If you took one black woman, divided her descendants by three generations of white men, all the blackness would disappear. They had a word for it, assimilation. The natives would be absorbed into the Commonwealth. The worst thing that happened to me was being born what was termed black. It is also the greatest thing to happen to me. The worst is that my fate, at times in history, whether someone like me would live or die, could be so arbitrarily decided by others. To be born black meant always having to explain myself because I wasn't really black at all. If I am the sum of genes, I am as white as I am black. But I learned a lesson very early on in life, one that is the most important lesson a person deemed black can learn. Whiteness is not a colour. And just before I begin the conversation with Nam, I want to read, if I could, Nam, something from your book on David Maloof, because it speaks so powerfully to me and it echoes so many of the questions that I've struggled with and tried to articulate in my books. This is what identity looks like, Maloof is saying, if you must insist on it. It is, at its most basic, indistinguishable from existence, which is in turn infinitely complex, a network of tangled lines going every which way through every part of being in the world. These lines run in and out of place, time, genetics, culture, language, circumstance, accident, other people, all the happenstances of mind life and dream life. All a writer can do is stand in the midst of this monkey puzzle mesh and pluck one line, then another, trying to happen on a harmonics that sounds right. Art comes, or it doesn't, from these surroundings. What is folly is imagining you could compact these lines into coherence let alone sense, let alone representativeness. If my family history has imbued me with anything, it is the awareness that identity is complex, politics is complex. What a disappointment then that identity politics is so simplistic. Thank you. Jesus, it sounds so much better coming from you. Oh, it was beautiful. <laughs> it was beautiful. The words demand justice. They are, it's just magnificent, Nam. And, and, you know, I was so excited about doing this with Nam tonight because I have, I'm sure, more questions for him than he, than he has for me. But could I just begin? I just want to turn the tables. Could I just begin? <laughs> Come on. Could I, could, could I first just begin with this idea that you, you plumb in this book and something that really struck me at the 
was the essence of this book about being Australian and what is it to write Australia into existence because that's what David Maloof was trying to do. And you said, white people are your bush. <laughs> it what, sounds weird out of context. But what it struck me because I think for white people, we, Indigenous people, are their bush. I think Australia is haunted by terra nullius. I think at the outback, the never, never, beyond the black stump are these places Australians don't go. And we feel unsettled here and disturbed here because we know there is an illegitimacy at the heart of their presence here. So for you, from a migrant background, a refugee background, and looking at white Australia as your entry point to Australia, what did you mean by that? They are the bush for you. To be honest, it was, um, it was one of those epiphanies that one gets in the shower you know, mm. at seven in the morning. Um, because as, as you know, and as we're gonna talk about, um, issues of identity for me are somewhat fraught, somewhat mm. loaded, and one of the things that I resist is a, um, a conventional um, apprehension, um, let alone articulation mm. of identity. And so for me, sort of going around spouting off about white this or white supremacy or white, white this or that is kind of at odds with how I sort of like to, um, you know, more complexly calibrate things. But then I was in the shower and I was thinking, hey, you know, there's a tone to a lot of what Maloof was writing about mm. that doesn't quite jibe with me, but what jibes with me is this sense of what he calls the dark impenetrable, the dark unmanageable, yes. you yes. know. And then I realised that for me, I don't get that sense when I look at the Australian landscape. I look out and it poses nothing more than itself to me. I, because I don't see. you didn't invent terra nullius. I think that, I mean, that yeah. would be one, one way of looking at it, yeah. It wasn't a sense of um, it being connected to a deeper psychic moment or wound or destiny, I guess. And to put it simplistically, perhaps migrants um, look at the land and more than anything, they see opportunity or they mm. see space. They see a space in which mm. they're invited under conditions to do their work. And so it, it, it came to me, I guess, that this sense of whiteness by which I mean um, an entire element and infrastructure that surrounds us and that is not always acknowledged, and I wanna to talk to you about this mm. as well, um, in some senses was, was, was the bush for me. It was the thing that was unmanageable. It was the chthonic um, indigenous mm. um, reality that you know, wasn't really spoken about and you didn't want to venture too far into it. And, and isn't it interesting that David Maloof, and, and this has happened to me in my life too, there was a strange thing about whiteness, and I say this as someone who has a white grandmother, Irish ancestry, and this is part of my story, that when you centralise, when you normalise the idea of whiteness, other people are invisible or othered until they become, to you, white. And, and I think David Maloof has pulled off that trick. David Maloof is always seen as an Australian writer. The Lebanese part of his heritage has sort of vanished because he's become so familiar to people. And I think for me, being a mainstay in the media, occupying that place, intimate place in people's homes, 
made me white, strangely. Mm. And people have often said to me, but you're not like the others or you're different or, you know, certainly didn't say it to me when I was growing up. But this idea that as you attain some sort of legitimacy, that there is a whitening process. And maybe for Asian Australians, and this may be tied in with the, the yellow peril fear, as it was known, and the white Australia policy, that there is still this, while you can absorb Greek, Italian, Lebanese, the lighter-skinned Aboriginal people or successful Aboriginal people, there is still an impenetrability or a separation or a detachment or a distance when mm. it comes to Asia. Do you, do you think that? Yeah, well, it's interesting because reading um, one of the responses by George Megalogenis to your quarterly essay, one of the points that he made was that his mob, Greeks and Italians, mm. weren't white mm. until the Vietnamese came in the <laughs> 70s. And then suddenly, here you are, here's your past, you know. And, and it's strange because that sort of, that, that sense of substitutability, um, which in the moment just seems so intractable, and yet I remember when, in the 90s, when Pauline Hansen was talking about being swamped by Asians, yeah. and now Asians has just been supplanted by Muslims. Yes. As though it were just an easy, you know, yeah. bait and switch. Yeah. When in fact, obviously, like the, con the context and the circumstances are very different. And so the question I have for you is, what then is, what then is whiteness? How is it constituted? Is it a relational thing? Mm. And how have you navigated it consciously or, or you know, maybe subconsciously? It, it is the assumption of power and privilege and normality. Um, and I've been conflicted and torn by this because I'm not one, and you aren't either, as you say very explicitly in the book, we don't have enough culture to reject all of Western civilization. We don't. You know, I can stand, and as I've done, and marvel at the Sistine Chapel and what Michelangelo created there because it spoke to me incredibly powerfully. It changed my life, to be honest, and when you read the books, I think you'll get that understanding of why. You know, I'm, I'm shaped by my Irish heritage as much as my Aboriginal. The, the writers, Yeats and Joyce, um, have a powerful hold on my soul. Um, the ideas of the Enlightenment, liberalism and democracy, the ideas of universal humanity, what Immanuel Kant talked about as the perpetual peace of cosmopolitanism and this idea that we are not constrained by our ethnicity, our race or our history, that liberalism is a key to unlocking the chains of the past at its best, has also gone hand in hand with colonisation and imperialism and scientific pseudo-racism, pseudo-scientific racism. It, so whiteness is something I struggle with because I see that whiteness and the ideas that came out of what we see as white society, as European society, have ignited the modern world. It is undeniable that those ideas set fire to the ideas of liberty and freedom and emancipation. On the one hand, it could enslave people. On the other hand, it could inspire people to rise against it. It could, you know, it could inspire a slaveholder like Thomas Jefferson to write a document in the Declaration of Independence that said that all human beings are equal. What an incredibly powerful idea. But I think the fulfilment of that idea as it has traveled the world, has become enmeshed and inseparable 
from whiteness. And that we're seeing in our society now liberal democracy founded on those enlightenment ideas of individualism and freedom is being challenged by the diversity and the plurality of our world and that we have different people in our societies now within liberal democracies making ethical claims on the state that the state struggles to deal with and Islam is, is, is front and centre, a prime example of that. So whiteness for me is this idea that to be white is to be the font of wisdom is to centralise your position in the broad sweep of history framed around the birth of the modern world, the birth of the modern nation state, um, global economics, you know, these things that have shaped our lives. And that for us, for people who are not designated white, we have to find a way in. And in finding a way in, how do we hold on to those things that are important to us and give us a sense of ourselves. It's a struggle. It's a conflict constantly, but one that I embrace, not one that I shun. Yeah, I want to, I want to dig into that a little bit, if, if, mm. if we may. Um, I mean, Jefferson, utterer of some of the great liberal mm. tenants, and as we know, kept slaves, fathered children, black children. Yeah. Um, you know, there are so many... There's a, there's a quote by Walter Benjamin where he says... Mm. You know, there is not a single document of civilization which is not at the same time a document of barbarity. Mm. Um, Linguist, who we were just talking about before, um, talks about how the great cathedrals in Belgium are built um, on human hands mm. and human blood and, mm. you know, mortared by human blood. You know, there, there is this sense that Kant, who you mentioned, mm. had some pretty retrograde but, but views about... Terribly racist comments about Africans. Exactly, and, yeah. yeah. And so this, this, this idea is... You, you say at one point um, in your book that it's baked in, racism mm. is baked in to liberalism. So when you're negotiating this tension between how do I get into it, shake it around, mm. dig around and maybe come out with something that works for, for me, mm. how do you square that, I guess, with the baked inness? I, I accept that the idea is greater than the people who gave birth to the ideas. I accept that Immanuel Kant's ideas of a universal humanity is greater than the racist ideas that he held that were, that as, a, as a man of his time, as a product of his time, that I accept that the aspiration and the guiding principle of America that, of equality is greater than the man who held the pen in Thomas Jefferson. Um, I, I think that the idea I embrace the ideas of liberalism. And once you get to that point, once you say, okay, I think this can work for me. And in saying this, I think I'm in good company. Frederick Douglass, the great black American thinker and, and anti-slavery uh, activist, um, saw that the freedom for black Americans came within the promise that lie in the constitution. What a, not a rejection of it, mm. but lie in the promise of that. Martin Luther King, when he spoke about being judged by the, the content of your character and not the colour of your skin, was embracing a promise of liberalism, but reminding people at the same time that it was still yet a dream, that it wasn't a reality. Nelson Mandela, when he was released from Robben Island Prison after 25 years, didn't torch South Africa, didn't set fire to the country, didn't reject the ideas of liberal democracy that had put him in chains. He said, it can work 
for us. And I embrace those ideas and I think we see their, I think we see their fulfilment in Australia in the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which coming from a people who had been locked out of our democracy, for whom the Constitution was written to exclude, saying in spite of all of that, we hold to the idea of liberal democracy and the fulfilment and the freedom of our people can come within the, do within the founding document of Australia, the Constitution. I embrace those ideas and I try to enlarge the idea of liberalism to make liberalism stare its history and the legacy of its history and the stain of race in its face and saying, if this counts for something, then surely we can take those ideas and create a bigger idea of liberalism that can hold us all. It's not a comfortable thing to try to do. It's difficult, I wrestle with it. You get too close to it and you get burned. But it is a guiding principle for me that we can be set free and that there is a Hegelian idea of an arc of history, a progress of history that delivers us to a point of freedom and recognition. And, and I hold to that. So you're an optimist. I, 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 think, I think I am and I think deep down anyone who puts pen to paper is because otherwise I would just write it and set fire to it. I mean, really, you know, it's become strangely trendy to talk about hopelessness as if that's something to embrace. Mm. You know, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, the great black American writer, um, wrote that searing essay, Between the World and Me. And he's a wonderful thinker and, a, and an eloquent writer. Um, but he, he often says that his job is not to give hope and he doesn't believe in a hope. And he, he sort of ties to this, he, he's holds this idea of the irredeemable racism mm. of, of the United States and that it is legacy, it is history for, the, for America to strip the bones from black Built people. on the plunder of the Built black body. Built on the plunder of the black body. Yeah. And, and I think, well, why write? I know that there's a cathartic element to this, but I know as well, and he would admit that his life is measurably different from his parents or his grandparents or his ancestors who were held in slavery. It is not to deny there are structural issues of racism. It is not to deny that we fail every day, that there are Aboriginal kids committing suicide and locked up in horrific numbers in Australia as evidence that we fail. But it's a guiding star for me. And it, if that is optimism, then you know I'm happy to embrace that. There's I actually don't know what I think about this. There's, there's a bit in Tolstoy where he talks um, one of his long-winded theories about violence being a constant. Mm. And no matter what the affairs of uh, human politics or configuration, that that violence will be somehow, um, you know, baked in, whether mm. it's in the form of, you know, outright war or civil war or um, mm. serfdom or relations, etc. And And that sort of holding it up against, I guess, Kant's idea of perpetual peace. Yes, yes. You know, I guess my question to you now is, um, you, you cite, uh, you reference Fukuyama um, yes. in your books and this idea of the end of history, of mm. liberal democracy being the end of history. And yet there was a stat that you pulled up which, which shocked me, which was apparently one third of young Australians yes. no longer believe democracy is the best form of government. No. So no. If, if, if we are on this arc of, of um, of liberalism and, mm. and freedom, what's happening? What's going wrong? I think that liberalism sets us tests that 
we struggle to meet. We struggle to pass. I think that's the glory of the idea. I mentioned before the epiphany that I had um, in the Sistine Chapel. And coincidentally, I wasn't aware of this. Someone pointed out to me the other day that on one of the versions of Fukuyama's book, The End of History, um, he actually has on the front cover of the painting of the Sistine Chapel and the no hands way. of Adam and God. I'd, I'd, I'd missed that connection. Um, but the epiphany that I had there was that here was a representation in the figures of Adam and God reaching for each other, a representation of the struggle of humanity. The fingers don't touch. Had they touched, all of those questions would have been answered. There'd have been no space for us. And Michelangelo, in, in leaving that space, gave space for us. And that's the space that we live in. That's the space that I embrace. It holds our art, our love, our history, our anger, our hatred, our war, our peace. All of it is in that space. Liberalism for me lives in that space because it tests us and it asks us to be bigger than those things. But we are also hardwired for tribalism. Um, and I've seen this as a reporter all around the world. You know, Hutu versus Tutsi in Rwanda. Shia versus Sunni, Hindu versus Muslim, Catholic versus Protestant. I inherited that Fenian grievance, runs virulently through my family. Um, this idea that we form our tribes, we are shaped by historical grievance, that our identities are tied endlessly to resentment and vengeance, and that lies at the heart of the conflicts that we see in our world. And I think the challenge and the test for liberalism, and it's failing right now, is to give, is to articulate a sense of how we can live together without extinguishing the things that make us distinct and different. Liberalism at its worst can be erasure. It can be about smoothing out the edges so that we don't necessarily, you know, we, we become estranged from our communities, our faith, and you end up with a, a neoliberal idea uh, of where there is no society, as Margaret Thatcher said, there is just individuals, homo economic, economicus, you know, this idea that the economy comes before culture. And, and that's the risk of liberalism. But that's what we struggle with. That's what we struggle with. And right now, liberalism is in retreat. It is, you know, we live in an age of anger, an age of sectarianism, tribalism, arch-nationalism. The borders are going back up. Fukuyama's end of history has seen, in fact, the return of history. Donald Trump has played that in America, played those divisions, has taken him to the, to the White House. Brexit is Britain's struggle with the cosmopolitan dream of a united Europe and holding on to the village green and the identities that have given them a sense of themselves and connection to their own past. It's the tension between the universalism of history that Hegel talked about and the other idea that we live within our little platoons, as Edmund Burke talked about. That's the clash that exists in our society today. And I'm trying to negotiate that. And, and I don't see that our politicians or political leaders in our midst, I don't see that political leader in our midst who's able to speak eloquently to that idea. If you were to be the advisor to such a person, or if you happen to be that person yourself because you've been approached by all yeah, I've said no political that, parties. That poison chalice. How would, you, how would you advise that leader articulate that message to an entire country? I think, it, for me, it comes down to something very simple. You know, I say in the, um, I think it's, uh, it's, in, it's in Australia today, 
I'd touch on this and on identity. If I was to write a love letter to liberalism, the first word on the page would be freedom. That's what it is. Mm. It is freedom. But freedom asks so much of us. Freedom gave rise to the American Revolution. It ignited the French Revolution. But as we saw from the French Revolution, freedom very quickly turns to terror. You know, when you seek unity, you very quickly replace, supplant it with totality, and that's the, you're on the road to totalitarianism. Freedom is the thing, I think, that ignites the world. And the core of freedom is love. That's what... Love is the vital ingredient of freedom. The f the, love gives you the freedom to marry someone else. To, to find yourself in common with your neighbour who doesn't look like you. You know, to love someone in spite of, they, you know, worshipping, praying another God. Love is what totalitarians hate. It's what they seek to extinguish. Identity doesn't like love. Identity doesn't cope well with love. Identity copes well with unity, totality, the imposition of identity on people and doesn't deal with love. There's this beautiful book, part in the, the book that... Um, on identity that I was, I was grappling with the writers that have inspired me and how they've embraced exile, love, freedom. They're the writers I love. James Joyce, um, James Baldwin, Solzhenitsyn. And there's this lovely moment when Solzhenitsyn writes in the Gulag Archipelago. He writes a chapter entitled First Cell, First Love. This is a man whose love the Soviet Union tried to crush, whose I, who the Soviet identity banished him to the gulag. He'd been held in solitary confinement and he said he was finally led to a cell and they opened the cell door and these three dishevelled faces looked up at him and they smiled and he'd forgotten what a smile looked like mm. and the first thing they said to him was, are you from freedom? Freedom. Freedom tears down empires. Freedom overturns despots. So I would say to someone, embrace the idea of freedom. Freedom is hard. Look at, look at the debate in our society today around the rugby player, Israel Folau. Do we live in a society where someone who holds firmly to a, a, a very fundamental Christian belief, but sincerely and firmly, and expresses that publicly and proselytises as he feels compelled to do as a sincerely held Christian faith and at the risk of offending people, yes. Should he be shut down? Should he be sacked? Should he be banished? Or should we have the right to allow him to speak and speak against him? That others are also able to bring their voices. The problem for liberalism is that we have tried to, to socially engineer our societies. We have tried to limit freedom. We've tried to manage freedom. Freedom is unmanageable mm. and it asks uncomfortable questions of us and it makes us uncomfortable and it is meant to. How do we articulate that in an age of Twitter and political identities and tribalism and anger when people retreat to their corners and yell at each other and try to shut each other down? That's what's tearing at the heart of liberalism. Where is the political leader who can speak above that? They don't, they don't, they're not in our midst right now. 
Man, there's so, many, so much to talk about. I've been given the, the five-minute oh, no. um, thingo. But I want to ask you, I mean, one of, the big, one of the big questions, I guess, which I think touches um, right in the heart of what we're talking about, you talk about forgetting. Mm. You talk about the idea that in this age of sectarianism and division, um, of grievance politics, of moving apart from each other and dwelling on the past, the memory of wounds, as Miwash mm. was saying. Mm. You talk about the, this idea that there can be potentially a peace, but it may come at the cost of justice. <laughs> can you talk to that? Can you That's talk to the idea? It's a dangerous idea, it isn't is. it? It's, a, it's an incredibly courageous and crazy idea yeah, in today's well, it, political well, circumstance. It is. Uh, you know, Nietzsche talked about the man of resentment. It's the French word has a power that the English word resentment doesn't have because the man of resentment, as he warned, was a prisoner of his past, someone who lives in the shadows, who returns endlessly to the original wound, not to heal it, but to prise it open, to pick it apart, because that is the source of power and identity. And that's what's in our world today. It's what Xi Jinping reminds the Chinese people. Never forget the 100 years of humiliation. Remember what the foreigners did to us. Vladimir Putin, the great catastrophe of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Empire. ISIS, never forget the Crusades. You know, these people who, who frame their identity and their being around a sense of unending grievance and vendetta and resentment. And frankly, I've seen elements of that creep into the Aboriginal political movement as well and it, and it disturbs me because it is not justice that people seek. It is not the righteous anger of justice. It is the unending perpetuation of grievance and resentment from which there is no escape. There can be no escape. And as Camus told us, resentment is always resentment against yourself. Ultimately, that turns inward. And the antidote to that, and this is a, this is a, a challenging and, and, in, and in our time, heretical idea, I first came upon in the words of Ernest Renan, a French historian and philosopher, who wrote in the 1800s, what is a nation? And he posed this idea. Remember the history of France, of course, that he was writing out of. A nation is born as much on what we are prepared to forget as what we remember. We choose all the time what we commemorate. Why do we elevate Anzac over Kokoda? Why are there statues to Captain Cook saying that he discovered Australia and, you know, it's not the statues to the people who were here when he first landed. We choose all the time what we seek to commemorate and remember. What are we prepared to forget? Forgetting is not erasure. Forgetting is not amnesia. Forgetting is not, is not you know, as someone once said, burying your ancestors twice. Forgetting is looking history in the eye Forgetting is saying that we must face the legacy of our history, but accept we can never atone for those things and to find a new page to write a new idea of ourselves that is not chained to the legacy of suffering and to Milosh's memory of wounds. It is a really tough idea. But if we don't do that, we get Hutu and Tutsi, we get the Balkans, you know, this is what we get. We get hundreds of years of sectarian hatred in Northern Ireland. This is what we get. And I think 
as an example in our time of two men who faced that very question, Mandela and Tutu at the end of apartheid. They could have set fire to that country. They had a truth and reconciliation commission, not a truth and justice commission. They didn't prosecute the crimes of apartheid. They freed themselves from the crimes of apartheid. They heard them. They heard those stories. And it was a national catharsis. And I believe that they showed us that there is a greater justice, that peace and a new day and a new nation is the greater justice than the endless prosecution of the past. It's a tough idea in the times that we live in. I'm going to embarrass you with the last question before mm. we uh, open it up. How, how did you move from the kid at five years old mm. with a cake of soap scrubbing the blackness out of his skin mm. through the war zones that you've been through, through, mm. the, through the hardships, the, the public um, mm. scourings, um, you know, the slings and arrows from left and right. As I trace the progression of your thought through these books, yeah. it's only in the last book yeah. that love actually blooms and takes, yeah. takes um, you know, and it was there, And it was there all the it time. Was there all, it was there all the time. But I couldn't see it and I couldn't embrace it. Can you talk to, to us about that? How did you actually arrive at that? That, uh, you know, that grace, I guess. It was, grace is the right word, Nam, because that was what I was born into. I was born into a people full of grace, a people who had endured the worst of history, a people who'd been segregated, excluded, denied, people who were treated as second-class citizens, if, if that, and people who never stopped believing that there was a better day. And I spent many restless hours in the mission church that I was raised in, with my uncle preaching from the pulpit, fire and brimstone, you know, like something out of the American South, spit and sweat flying. <laughs> and, and I absorbed those ideas, but it took me a long time to see what he was really saying. And it, it took me a lifetime of reading, of opening myself up to writers who defied the age, who spoke against the age, who spoke about love. That's what James Baldwin wrote, wrote about when he went to France. He said, I'm, I'm not staying in America. I don't wish to be a Negro, let alone a Negro writer. No one's gonna put me in a box. But he went to France and he wrote a love story about two white men, freedom. Love, it's what Joyce said, as you quoted, you know, beautifully in, in your book, that he went in search of the unconstructed conscience of my race. I'm not going to be tied to a legacy of, you know, of grievance and resentment. I'm not going to have someone define me that there is love out there. It's what Solzhenitsyn wrote about. It's what Toni Morrison said when she said, we have to stop talking back to racism because there will always be one more thing. You can't escape. If you accept the logic of race, you accept the logic of racism mm. and you allow other people to define you and they will always set the bar just that little bit higher. Don't speak to it. Speak to love because love is greater than that and love is the vital ingredient of freedom. That's what I learned from my grandparents. That's what I heard in the, the little old mission church that I spent hours in. That's what the great writers have always spoken to me. That's what you wrote about, Nan. 
You wrote about love and you wrote about the freedom to love and you wrote about writers who lit a path to freedom for you. So it was writing and it was thinking and it was moving forward and it was trying to write myself out of other people's boxes. Well, as I'm sure you will agree, um, there's not one conversation, but probably about 20 that Stan <laughs> has opened up. And, you know, these are conversations that we're not having. And if we are having them, we're having them in constrained and contorted ways with a background of fear, I think, mm. quite often. And so I want to thank you for lending your voice. Thank you. And your spirit. And, to I, and these can I thank you? Because, you know, what you wrote in the boat, how, you know, hyphened Australian, as you call yourself in, you know, Vietnamese Australian, could write about South American gangster kids and make them feel like me. You know, that ability to inhabit other people, other places, and not allow yourself to be so defined, to write yourself out of the box. I read the boat. It opened a world for me, man. And I've read your book on David Maloof, and it's opened another world for me. So thank you. Oh, mate, appreciate it. Thanks very much. We have some questions. Yeah. I think there's a roving microphone. Yeah, here it is. Ah, yeah. there we go. There must be someone. Questions are like stars at night. You see one and then suddenly there's a hundred. There's one right there. Just, just, I've got one yep. here. And there's a couple behind you there. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Okay, we thank you so much for that. Um, we heard about the appearance of love in the latest book. I wonder if there's a story about its emergence for you. Thank you. Big pardon? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Beautiful. I'll ask it again. Sorry? Uh, so we heard about the emergence of love yes. in your latest book. And I wonder if there's a story. Oh, there about is a story. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful you know, it was staring me in the face all my, all my life. My mother's parents had a love that was bigger than Australia. Bigger than Australia. He was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Australian girl who one day moved into a tent with an Aboriginal man by the river who couldn't marry. She couldn't go to the, the hospital to have her children because they wouldn't allow her, who endured the humiliation of being searched by police every time she went uptown accused of running grog, who saw the tin humpy that she lived in bulldozed to the ground while the police held a gun to my grandfather's head, how they ran over the graves of two of her children that she'd buried. This was, this was love, white and black, at a time when they said that white and black should not be together, a love bigger than Australia and a love that was always there for me to see and in my own distorted search for identity where I clung to grievance and hatred and said that everything about white Australia needed to be condemned, could not see in what was there in my own family, the love of two people. We don't live in boxes. Totalitarians impose boxes. We live in the world and the world is fired by the idea of, of love and freedom. So there was a story right there in my family that all I had to do was see it. There's one here. I know, I think I've got one over here. I'm going to pass it to you. <coughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
Thanks, Stan. Um, in terms of observing the lack of political leadership in this space, why no to the poison chalice, if you can mm. add something to that space? Because as a Scottish politician once said, if I could write all the songs, I wouldn't care who wrote the laws. But I think a story of a nation is bigger than the laws of a nation. I don't think a nation is what we write in parliament. I don't think politicians define a nation. I believe a nation is a story. Nam writes Australia into existence. David Maloof writes Australia into existence. You know, Randolph Stowe wrote Australia into existence. Patrick White, Christina Stead, these people write Australia into existence. Um, indigenous writers, you know, writer Alexis Wright, um, you know, Tony Birch. These people write Australia into existence. And I would rather be on the side of the poets than the side of the politics. Last question. Thanks. Um, you mentioned the Uluru Statement from the mm. heart, and I wondered if you had any thoughts about what that means for um, identity, and mm. especially when it comes to makarata or coming together after Ab a struggle. Absolutely. If anything speaks to freeing people from the identity boxes and the cages that people are in, it's the Uluru Statement from the heart. There's a lovely line from Franz Kafka, and he wasn't speaking specifically about identity, but I've, I've, I've you know, engineered it. Um, he said that a cage went in search of a bird. That's what I feel about the worst of identity, that traps us and doesn't allow our, us to feel free. Aboriginal people have been trapped in that cage for 200 years. There've been more than 60 different definitions of what it is to be Aboriginal imposed by the state. None of them speak to what I am. When I tick a box on a census form that says, are you Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander? That doesn't say Dharawal, Wiradjuri, Gamilaroi, Irish. My grandmother can't tick that box. My wife can't tick that box. My wife's European, Chinese and Portuguese. What, which box is she in? What box are my children in? You know, what the Uluru Statement from the Heart seeks to do is it seeks to do a couple of things. One is to marry the deeply held and unceded sovereignty of the first people of this, of this land with the lived experience of the sovereignty, the political sovereignty of the Commonwealth and to enshrine in the constitution a mechanism for indigenous people to have a voice to power, to help to influence uh, and to shape policy directed specifically towards indigenous people. There are rights that indigenous people have in Australia and responsibilities that no other Australian has. Rights of native title and a whole cascade of things that fall as a result of that. The federal parliament can make laws specifically for indigenous people that it can't for other people. Um, that would give indigenous people a, a greater sense of political representation and enlarge our liberal democracy. But it does something else. It also frees Aboriginal people from the past. And it demands that we look forward and not back. And there's a compelling part of the Uluru Statement that says that now our children will walk in two worlds and they will be a gift to their nation. That's what that does. Well, on that note, um, thank you very much for coming. Stan will be out the front, happy to sign books, and please join me in thanking Lovely. Stan Grant. Thank you all so much. <laughs> Thanks, man, it was fantastic. Thank you so much.
And of course, to our gorgeous Nam Lee. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Stan Grant in conversation with Nam Lee. Stan's new books, Australia Day and On Identity, are available from all reading stores. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, readings.com.au, where you'll also find news, reviews and interviews and information on our current book, music and DVD releases. You can even sign up to our newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Monthly.